two. Chris, can I move this? I got it. This morning, the Holy Spirit's been putting in people's hearts. Gwen talking about how He makes us clean rocks, but we have to take time and the Holy Spirit. Brandon alluded to that as well. And I had something I was going to share with the announcements Chris shared. So, yeah, God, God is working. Um, so we're diving into the rest, the next part of First Peter, chapter 2, which Forrest reminded me was not going to be fun last Sunday. and said he was going to pray for me, so thank you for that. Um, this title is called Submission to Authority. So I don't know if that's good or bad, heading into 2021, new president, all that jazz, but I'm going to do my best to just present what God's Word says and leave it at that, and then let you guys apply it. Um, but I want, I wanted to just take a couple seconds and point out kind of what the next few weeks are going to look at, look like, because it's not just this one little snippet about a mission, submission to authority. There, there's a whole theme that's going to happen here. And for those of you that like themes and like history, again, this whole, the whole book is about living in a hostile environment and having hope and how do you survive? I mean, Peter wrote this to encourage the church because they were living in a hostile environment. It was Rome. I mean, the church was hated. Nero was on the throne and people were losing their lives. It was a very hostile environment. But over the next two chapters, I mean, again, we've made them chapters. Uh, they, this would originally have been a letter. But basically, 2.11 through 4.11, the whole point is living as aliens to bring glory to God in a hostile world. That would be the theme if you look it up in a commentary or in an additional book. So... Chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11, is living as an alien, as an exile, as a sojourner, to bring glory to God in a hostile world. So verses 11 and 12, which we touched on last week, and actually that's where we're going to begin this morning, because they set the stage for this next chunk in, the, in Second Peter. We're not going to go through all that this morning, or First Peter. By the way, if you thought we were going to go through two chapters this morning, it, no. This will be over the next few weeks. Um, but verses 11 and 12 is Christian life as we battle and our witnesses Verses basically 2 through 13 through 312 are testifying to the gospel first in social order, then also in marriage. And also tucked in there is in slavery. Because, again, I think we forget that most of the new Roman world, Christian people were slaves. You either slave or free. And the majority of people would have been slaves. Really, the Roman citizens would have been your free people, which also is where you get the term freed man and sometimes the church and history is referred to as the freed man's place of worship because a lot of freed men, people that came out of slavery, also became Christians, just if you like history. So again, 2.13 through 3.12, testifying to the gospel and the social order, of again, with slavery and then also in marriage, authority in marriage, again, because a lot of people would have been married to non-believers. A lot of people might have even been married to a Roman citizen and maybe they're not. Um, so there was all that going on. And then the last part of it, 3.13 through 4.11, is then how do we respond to suffering in a godly way? So today we're going to focus on 2.11 through 17. I know the I know somewhere it said 25. We're not going to get that far. We're only going to get 11 through 17 this morning. Trust me, there's enough there. Um, we'll just we'll I'll figure out how we're going to do the rest as we go on, because we had a couple of weeks before Easter. So we might just have to push this out a week. Uh, but we're going to be 2.11 
through 17, kind of beginning this. And so I, I just wanted you guys to hear that, to know that, that this is not just a one-time thing. There's this overarching theme that the world's crazy. It's hostile. And how do you live in that? How do you bring glory to God? How do you submit to the different things? Again, whether you're a slave, whether you're, it's a government thing, whether it's a marriage thing. And I realize, again, none of us are slaves but I think some of the what he talks about, and we'll look at this next week, could maybe transfer over to job, the workplace, you know, your bosses, how you treat them. So you might feel like a slave at work. Um, some of you might, some of you may not. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of what the, the next few weeks are going to look like. And, and so I've put a lot of time just to try to lay this out. And I just wanted to, to share that because I don't want you to think I'm just coming at you with this, this government thing. But this is this, this overarching thing. So I want to read something from this commentary. Uh, it's, if you ever want a good commentators, the Believer's Church Bible commentary is, is, is a phenomenal one. Um, I really enjoy it. I use it a lot. There's lots of good ones out there, uh, but this is one that I enjoy. Burl actually turned me on to this back in, uh, believe it or not, he has this whole set somehow in Africa. Uh, I don't know how, but he's Burl. So, um, but I just wanted to read this to you to just set the stage for what Rome was like and also why Peter's writing this. And so citizenship under Roman law in areas where the readers lived was a complex matter. John Crook makes us aware that under Roman law, people, male or female, are either slaves or free. Free people are either free by birth or free by a grant of freedom from slavery. Other words, known as freed men. So again, you possibly were born into freedom or if you were lucky, your master, your owner, your Roman citizen could free you. Uh, which did happen from time to time. I mean, this is the whole book of Philemon is all about this, if you've ever uh, ever read that. Um, so anyway, free people are also either Roman citizens or Latins, um, which is immigrant or travel. So as a free person, you were either a Roman citizen or you weren't. So if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were considered as a Latin or a migrant or a traveler. Moreover, among the city-states of Greece, one could be a citizen of one local state but not of another. In short, the whole issue of rights and privileges as citizens was both confusing and oppressive. It is understandable that people would not think kindly of their rulers. So again, people are living in slavery. Some people are freed. Some people are not. Some people are considered Roman citizens, which means they have more rights than the Latins people who were not Roman citizens. If you lived in a certain town, you might have a right in that town, but not in another town. So it got complex and it made people angry and it made people not be kindly. And in a way, we kind of dealt with this in 2020 when it came to COVID, right? Because if you traveled during COVID, one state had this set of rules and one state had this set of rules and one state had this set of rules. And if you were trying to go from Missouri to here, you maybe had to do something in Missouri to go here. But yet people in Missouri are like, why are you doing that? We don't have those rules. But it's because of the complexity of the matter. So, again, a lot of us that traveled dealt with that. Or you get to a state and you're like, think you've been living under these rules. And all of a sudden there's a whole new set of rules that you had to learn while you were in that state. That's exactly what these people lived with day in and day out. Because town to town, area to area, Greece and Rome, it was all very complex. Um, but ultimately, all of it came down to submission to the emperor. And in Roman culture, the emperor was a god. So this, this, so Peter is going to be talking about submission, which I'm going to define and you, give you the Greek word for that in a few, few minutes. But what the people of Rome would have done is they would have worshipped the emperor. The emperor himself claimed to be a deity, claimed to be a god. The people were mandated to worship the emperor. 
So Peter's going to talk about submission and honor. That is not the same as the word fear that he uses, I believe, in verse, where is it? 15, maybe? No, 17. Sorry. That word fear, fear God, it's that, that we hear all throughout the Bible, that fear of reverent, that worship. So he's going to say, honor the emperor, be submissive to the emperor. He is in charge. He is in charge of the entity, but you're not going to worship him. You're going to worship God and God alone. Because again, in Roman culture, you worship the emperor. It'd be like if people in America started worshiping the president. And I know that just sounds ludicrous because we've never done that, but that, that's how this works. The emperor claimed to be a god, he acted like a god, and he demanded to be worshipped as a god. Um, and, and so they were. So that's the world they're living in. And so that caused conflict, it caused complications, because the world's telling you, hey, you got to worship this man, and the church is saying, no, you don't worship this man, you got to worship God and God alone, but you do need to honor and respect. And so finding that balance was hard for the early church. Especially if they were Roman citizens. If you were a Latin or you were a foreigner, you kind of got a pass. Because, well, you weren't a Roman citizen anyway. But on top of that, if you weren't a Roman citizen, if you were a Latin, so to speak, you were basically considered a dog. You were a nobody. You were a nothing. So even though you kind of got the pass on the worship, you, you weren't respected. You weren't looked at. You weren't listened to. It would have been very hard to have a business. It would have been very hard to function. That's why people like Lydia and other people throughout the Bible are phenomenal that they were so successful. Because a lot of them were not Roman citizens. And to be successful in a Roman culture and not be a Roman citizen, that was a very unique thing. And so, again, I know some of you hate history. I know some of you love history. But I think understanding the context and the history of Rome begins, in my opinion, to make this make even more sense of why Peter was writing what he was writing. So starting off in verse 11, again, we touched on it last week, but we have to start there because 11 and 12 set the stage for the next two chapters. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 basically set the stage for all of 2, all of 3, and into 4. And one thing I've learned, and it's a proven fact, is that most people don't remember the front part of the sermon. Most people don't remember the last part of the sermon. For some reason, people remember somewhere in the middle. Because in the front part, you're distracted. You're still reading the announcements. You're trying to figure out what's going on. You're trying to get your kids quiet. You're trying to find your notes. And the last part, you're just like, my goodness, I'm so hungry. Will he just shut up? I want to go home. Will he stop talking? We need to get out of here. And so you've got to repeat yourself because people don't hear the first and the last. It's, it's a proven fact. They've done studies on it. Now, some of you are like, that's exactly when I listen. Great. Then you are abnormal and you're not part of the proven fact. And I love that if you're not. But anyway, verse 11, he says, behold, I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, we looked at this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I did put several things in your notes just to hopefully get you remembering what we talked about. So again, sojourners, we're, we're awaiting our end time. We're awaiting our inheritance. This is not where we belong. We're in exile. However you want to define it for you to remember, we are sojourners and exiles, and we're supposed to abstain from the passions of the flesh, right? Because the passions of the flesh, they tempt us, hence the struggle. So we need, so we're sojourners. This is not where we belong. We're waiting for our time. We're waiting for Christ to come back. We're waiting to go to heaven, our actual real home. We need to abstain from passions of the flesh because that's what causes us temptation. Hence the struggle, the battle that goes inside of us. So we gotta, we gotta flee from that. We remember last week we said abstain is to put away, put off, not just hide in the closet, but put away. 
Right. And then he says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when you speak against the evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right. So when we're holding to the sin, when we don't get rid of the passions of the flesh that are waging war, that basically causes harm in our lives. So, again, the the phrase holding to sin is not in those first few verses, but I just put that in the notes. When we hold to sin, it causes harm in our lives. Man, when we have things that control us, when we have passions of the flesh that dominate us, when we will not let go of those things, I don't care how we try to justify it. That's been a word I've heard all over this morning in Sunday school, in the morning. When we try to justify our sin and we hold on to it, it will cause harm in our lives. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but eventually it will cause harm. The sin always catches up with us. Always. So holding on to sin causes harm in our lives. Keep your contact among the Gentiles honorable so that when you speak against you as evildoers, you may see the good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. What does Peter mean by Gentiles? The word Gentile in the book of Peter and and Paul is the same thing. Gentile is the term for unbelievers. So he's saying, when you're amongst the unbelievers, you got to be honorable. So he doesn't literally mean the Gentile people, because anyone that wasn't Jew is Gentile. He's now redefining what he means. He's saying, you're either the church or you're the unbelievers. Right? Because last week we talked about we've been adopted in, we're the new Israel, we're the church. So he's like, alright, you have the church, and the church can be Jew or Gentile. So he's not using Gentile in the term of the people that aren't Jews because the church is both Jew and Gentile now. He said, you've got the church and you've got the unbelievers. So all throughout the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James use that term Gentile many times not to refer to people non-Jewish, but to refer to unbelievers. So he's like, when you're amongst the unbelievers, when you're hanging out with your, your, your people and your conduct, whatever, make sure it's honorable. So the word Gentile is literally the unbelievers. Because, right, again, we already said it. We're part of new Israel. We've been adopted in. Our actions are to be honorable, to be our testimony. Now, Peter says all this to set the stage. Right? So if we have to remember this is not our home. We have to remember to abstain from things of the flesh. And we have to remember that we're going to be living amongst unbelievers. So he sets that stage to then go in and talk about how do we interact with government? How do we interact with slavery or masters? Again, we don't face that here in America, but people in the world do. I mean, there's more slavery in the world today than there was in the time of the United States slavery. I mean, there are millions, if not a billion people still in slavery. India, prime example. 90% of the country is in slavery in, in, this, in the country of India. So slavery very much still exists. We are not facing it necessarily here in America, but it is something that pastors around the world are still dealing with when people come to know Christ. Anyway, he sets that stage. Home must abstain our conduct and our testimony amongst unbelievers because he's, it's the foundation. It's the absolute foundation about this submission to government, our masters, and then even, even into our marriage. And so it's, it's huge. It's key. So now that Peter has set the stage, he goes into this first thing. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Now, as Americans, we don't like the word subject, right? Subject in Greek is hapatosa. Hapatosa. That's the word in Greek. So if you want to write that in your notes, be subject, it literally means hapatosa, which means to be under or obedient, submit. We don't like that, right? 
I'm free. I have my rights. I'm not going to submit to anyone. I'm not going to be obedient. We, we wrestle that. At least I do. We battle that. We battle that. And so Peter says, look, you need to be subject. Not for your sake. Notice that next phrase. Why are we to be subject? For the Lord's sake. Peter is reminding us it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about my rights. You're to be subject to these authorities he's going to begin to talk about. In fact, he says you're to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be on the emperor as supreme. So he's 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 saying, look, I recognize the emperor is the supreme ruler of current day Rome. He's not a God, but he is the ruler or to the governors as sent by him to punish those that do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. So Peter's saying, look, we have government. We have this institute. We have the emperor. We have the governors. Their job is to punish those that do evil and to praise those that do good. And our job as Christians is to be subject to these people, whether we like them or not, for the Lord's sake. Not for our, not for my sake, for the Lord's sake. Why? Because he just told us earlier, hey, your conduct has to be honorable so that your, your sake, your, your, your attitude, your conduct can be a testimony, can be an example. So we're supposed to be under, we're supposed to be submit, we're supposed to be obedient to the people in charge for the Lord's sake. It begins our witness, it's our testimony. When we're respectful, even in an injustice situation, that speaks volumes. So again, subject to the emperor today, if you transfer that, we don't have an emperor in the United States, but that'd be people like the president, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the governors, the mayors. He obviously mentions governors. Those are people that we are under. Those are people that are in leadership that we're supposed to be subject to. It says that this is God's will for this is the will of God. So God's will is that our actions doing good will put to rest any false accusations, not against us as a people, but against us as the church. Again, he's writing to the church to encourage them. So there is an element of people, but ultimately it's the element of the church. Now, our first loyalty is to God, which he already talked about in the first part of chapter 2. Which is why Peter uses, reminds us that we're in exile, reminds us that we're sojourners, right? So that he's not telling us to submit to the world at all costs. Because he's already reminded us that we're part of a heavenly kingdom. Our first loyalty is to God. And you're in exile. You're a soldier. You don't belong here. But while you're here, you must submit to the authority. It's not a command to obey everything without question. It's not a command to obey everything without question. But it's to act accordingly when the government puts out rules. So obviously we have to weigh things against scripture. If, if tomorrow a law passed that the church could no longer meet... We're still going to meet. We might have to meet in Levi's barn or something, but we will still meet. We'll find a way to get together here until they shut us down. So I'm by no means by when I'm saying submit, I'm saying we have to just act blindly to everything. That's not what Peter's saying, because that's why he reminded us whose family are you a part of? But you can't read these verses. You can't use verses 13 without reading all of chapter two. Like so much of the Bible ties together. Peter's like, look, you don't belong here. This is not where you belong. You're a sojourner, but you need to do this to be honorable for who you're around. Remember that. So you need to be subject accordingly, of course, for this is the will of God. But obviously, because it's the will of God, if the government tells you to go against God's will, who do you obey? God's will. Right. Easy question. 
We obey God's will. So God is asking us for the sake of the testimony of God to be submissive, to be respectful. And even he uses in verse 17 to honor. But he doesn't tell us to fear the emperor or worship. He tells us to fear God. This is God's will that we be respectful and honorable. But if they tell you to go against God's will, then you obey God's will. God's will trumps everything else, which is why it's so important to remember we are part of God's kingdom first. Because if we're not a part of God's kingdoms first, God's will will not trump everything else. If we're a part of another kingdom first, then why would we listen to God's will? That, it's so important that like what we talked about last week and this week tie in together. So that's the stage. And he reminds us that governors, emperors, all these different people were set here to do a job. They're supposed to punish evil and praise good. Now, some are going to do it well and some are going to do it bad. Because some are believers and some are sinners. And as we have quoted for us for the last two years, why are we surprised when sinners keep sinning, right? Why are we surprised when people who are lost act lost? Not every single person that we still are supposed to submit to is going to do the right thing because they're lost. And lost people act lost. So many of you have questioned, just using a simple example, and I know I use Africa a lot, but I use it because it was a very different culture than here. So many of you have questioned, why did I pay bribe money? Because that's the way the system worked, right? I learned the system, I understood the system, I recognized that when I was at the border, and the guy says, hey, I need a thousand seifas, which is the equivalent of two bucks, there was no reason, there was no rhyme, he just wanted to put the money in his pocket. And he did it to lots of people, not just white people. Anyone that had money, anyone that had a car, anyone that had influence had to pay a fee. So I could sit there and fight it or I could submit to it. He wasn't hurting me. He wasn't telling me I couldn't worship. He wasn't telling me I couldn't be a Christian. He was simply saying, if you want to pass, I want some extra money for you. I chose to submit to it. Now, if you all go live in Guinea-Bissau and you want to do it differently, that's completely fine. You can choose to do what you want to do. I chose, you know what? This is not hurting. This is how this, this government is broken. It's based on bribery. It's based on relationship. It's how this government functions. I don't think it's right. I don't like it. But if I'm going to live here for three years, I have to play by their rules. And so their rules meant that in my pockets at all times, there was malaria medicine. There was a pair of eyeglasses. There was ibuprofen. There was Tylenol. And there was money for one of those things to come out. And if it was a really bad day, they wanted a soccer ball. And generally, I couldn't put one of those in my pocket. So then I had to do the whole, oh, I promised to bring you one back. And then I'd come back and be like, oh, I forgot it. I'll bring it next time. And then that would go back and forth for about four or five times. until I was like, I better buy a soccer ball. I'm going to be in trouble. So I chose to submit to the function of that government. Because in that, when I was living in Guinea-Bissau, their president and their parliament and their military leaders is who I had to come under because I was a resident of Guinea-Bissau. I have a residence card to prove it. They gave me residency there for five years. So I played by their rules as long as it didn't go against God's rules. Paying bribes, again, was it unfair? Yes. Was it unjust? Of course. Did it make sense? No. But it's how their broken system worked. Very similar to the Roman system, right? Roman citizens got rights. No one else didn't. Roman citizens got better money, better land, better, less taxes. No one else didn't. The Roman Empire grew on the backs of the unjustness, why the Roman citizens prospered. 
Was it right? No. Did it make sense? No. And yet Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and James all told the church, look, you're here to make disciples. You're here to obey God. Focus on that and let the injustice fall where it falls. Fight for the injustice where appropriate, but understand what you're fighting for. So then he finishes that. He says, for this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? Foolish people are always going to be there. I mean, we kind of already talked about that. There's always going to be people in leadership and in government and anything that just are foolish. And he's like, you focus on you. You focus on your conduct. You focus on your actions so you can silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because foolish people will always be there. And so by your conduct amongst the unbelievers, by your good deeds, by being submissive, submissive and being under, by obeying God's will, you're going to silence them. Because your actions speak louder than words in some cases. And it's true. It's true. Just again, another example. When I'd go on my motor, right, you're supposed to have all these documents. I had all these documents. They'd stop me and say, you don't have all the documents. I knew they wanted money. This is the case where I didn't submit. I played the game. I fought a little bit. And I said, okay, what documents do I not have? Oh, you don't have this document. All right, let's go to the governor in Sao Domingo where I bought my documents and you show me which document I don't have and I will buy it right now. Hey, you're free to go, sir. Have a nice day. Happened every time, right? My actions, my honor by doing exactly what I did, buying the insurance, buying the document, buying the license, doing the things I needed to do, I made foolish people look foolish. I silenced their ignorance. So that was a situation where I did stand my ground. And I said, look, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Fine, let's go there together. I speak the language. I understand what you're saying. Let's go. And I will buy that document right now. And every time they let me go. Again, it's a silly example. It's a simple example. But we've all had them. And I wish I had one for America, but I've never had that experience in America. So I don't have one for here. But I'm sure some of you have had to silence foolish people in their ignorance because you did the right thing. Because you obeyed the rules. Because you were honorable. Here comes the ultimate paradox in the Bible, right? Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, for evil, sorry, not eels, not for a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we're free, but we're servants. What do you do with that? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Galatians five thirteen and 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul and Peter both address this idea of freedom and servanthood. James does too. It was a, it was a complicated matter. We're free. Galatians 5 tells us that. We're free. We're free indeed. But in our freedom, it doesn't mean that we can use it to whatever we want. So the best example that I, that I can think of for this is, is as a believer, just because I'm free of sin, just because I've been saved from sin, does not give me an excuse to go out and sin and then say, well, it's okay because God will forgive me. Right? I've done that. I'm guessing a lot of you in the room have done that. It was the number one thing I heard as a youth pastor 
Well, it's okay if I go do that because God will forgive me. Or it's okay because God has already forgiven me. So even though we're free, we cannot use our freedom to cover up our evil. And we do it all the time. We constantly justify sin under the premise of I'm free. Well, I'll just go and, 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 and watch that one thing tonight or look at that. Th- but, and then when I'm done, I'll confess and ask God to forgive me. Or I'll just, I'll, I mean, we justify, we, we have these battles in our heads, right? Man, we, we, we go back and forth in our heads or maybe even out loud. We're trying to justify our sin, justify our freedom to act in sin. I know I'm not the only person in the room that's done that. And I do it a lot. Right. There's things I battle with. I'm battling that flesh. I'm battling the passions of the flesh and I want to sin and I want to justify it because I know my God loves me. I know he'll never stop loving me. I know he'll never stop forgiving me. So I want to justify that that pleasurable moment just in that moment because I can come to him and ask for forgiveness. But holding on to the sin already says it will lead to harm. And so the more I hold on to that sin and the more I justify it, the more the lines get blurred, the more the gray becomes what I want to be black and white. And it will cause me harm. It will cause my family harm. It could cause my marriage harm. It could cause my children harm. So he said, look, you're free. You are free and you should live as free. But don't use your freedom to cover up evil. So therefore, you need to live as servants. You are servants of God. This is counterculture to Rome, and it's counterculture to our day and age. Very rarely do we like to hear the phrase, you're free but live as servants. No, I'm going to live as me. I'm going to live as I. I'm going to do what I want to do. And Peter, the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus, James, John, they're all like, hey, you are free. That is 100% correct. But in your freedom, you're going to choose to live as a servant. You're going to surrender those rights. You're going to be subject to God's will. And you're going to live as a servant of God. This is countercultural to our very human nature. I don't care what culture you lived in, whether it's Assyrian, whether it's Babylonian, whether it was Rome, whether it's America, whether it was some other culture. It's countercultural to say I'm free, but I'm going to live as a servant. It's a choice that we choose to make to say God's will is more important. My inheritance in heaven is more important. Giving up these things of the flesh are more important. And even though I have these freedoms, I'm going to surrender them. A great, great practical example. Man, if I know a brother or sister maybe battles alcohol. And they're like, hey, let's go out to dinner. Okay, great. We get to the restaurant and the only place open is, is the bar. I'm going to choose to go somewhere else. Why would I take an alcoholic or someone battling with alcohol and go sit in a bar for them to look at all those bottles and smell all those smells and see all those people laughing? And the whole time we're having dinner together, they're going, man, I just wish I could taste it. Why would I do that? Do I have the freedom to do that? Of course. Is it wrong to eat at a bar? No. Is it wrong to eat at a restaurant that serves alcohol? Of course not. But I have to make a choice what I'm going to surrender. And so I'm going to look at my friend and go, hey, let's go eat somewhere else. Or if they come and say, hey, do you want a glass of wine with your Italian food? I say, you know what? No, I'm going to have water. Do I personally think it's wrong to have a drink of alcohol? No, I don't think it's wrong. But I choose not to because I care more about you. I don't know everyone's stories. I don't know everyone's struggles. And I continually meet people that have different struggles and different things that they they battle the flesh for. And so there's a lot of things that I could do that I choose not to because it's not about me. It's about you. It's about the body of Christ. 
And I care more about each person in this room than my own personal freedoms. And I do not want to cause anyone in this room to stumble and fall because I did something that I could do, but ultimately was stupid and caused you harm. And because I don't know everyone's story, I choose to just say, you know, what, I'm good. It's a practical example that each one of us probably face every single day. Right? So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. So first, we're not going to justify our sin. We're not going to justify our evil because we're free. And then on top of it, we're choosing to live as servants of God, not because of ourselves, but for the greater good of the body of Christ. To uplift and encourage the body of Christ. So that when we're living in chaos and we're in that tumbly thing and the grit and the water all around us, we are coming out as these masterpieces that God designed us to be. And as we're bumping and we're grinding, that was a great example, Gwen. As we're bumping and we're grinding, we're helping each other. We're holding on to each other. It's like, man, I got this. I got you. You're not in this alone. Verse 17. He says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the empire. Emperor, sorry. My bad. We are called, first off, to honor everyone. Honor everyone. Again, this is counterculture to Rome, and I would say even to today. He tells the early church, you got to honor everybody. That means you got to honor that tax collector that's ripping you off. You got to honor that that soldier that keeps asking you for a little bit extra. You got to honor that guy in the temple that's gypped you off for all the money for the doves for all those years. You got to honor the governor. You got to honor the Roman soldier. You got to honor the guy asking for ridiculous taxes. You're supposed to honor everyone. Honor simply means to respect people, right? Honor everyone. And I think, so in Roman culture, you're honoring everyone, male, female, slave, free man the elite, the government, the soldiers. But man, that doesn't change today. Honor everyone. Do we honor everyone? Do we honor the person living underneath the bridge on the street? Or when we drive by, do we assume we know their story and make up stuff or go, man, why can't they just get a job? Are we willing to stop and hear their story? Are we willing to walk a mile in their shoes? Are we willing to get to know them? Do we honor them? We don't honor people in this culture. We honor people like us. We honor people that are our friends. And we honor people that we want to get us ahead. As a whole, I'm generalizing. And we are quick to assume things about people. I guarantee you get on a plane and somebody who's a Muslim comes in and their head has a turban on it, your, your mind's going to go somewhere that it shouldn't go. I've done it. I've done it myself. I remember flying right after 9-11 and a Muslim got on the plane and I was terrified. And I sat there as the plane ride went on and I just said, God, I'm so sorry. I don't even know that guy. We arrived safely. Guy went on his merry way. I went on my merry way. Do we honor people? I don't think we do. He says to honor everyone. I think we honor the people that we want to honor. We honor the people we like. We honor our friends. But I think we struggle honoring everyone. And we can make all kinds of examples. But I think you guys get the point. He says love the brotherhood. 
Who's the brotherhood? That's us. Right. The brotherhood, the church. He's like, love the brotherhood. So you need to honor everyone. Notice he doesn't say love everyone. He says honor everyone. Respect everyone. Treat them with dignity. Treat them like a human being. I'll go, you know, back to that. I just want to say one more thing. For anyone in the room that is battling pornography, that is not honoring everyone. Those people are children of God. They are people's daughters and even sons. And when we choose to participate in the largest billion dollar industry in the world for our own personal pleasure, that is not honoring everyone. I'll leave it at that. And I've been there and I've struggled with it, so I know what I'm talking about. Love the brotherhood, right? We're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to love the church. We're the body of Christ. He said this back in verse 22 of chapter 1. In case you forgot, I'll go back and and read it to you. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We're supposed to love the brotherhood. That means this should be a safe place, right? This should be a place where we can talk openly about our struggles. We can confess things. We can ask for prayer for things. And we're not judged and we're not shamed and we're not put down. Because what we're all sinners. Every single person in this room is a sinner. And every single person in this room struggles with stuff. We, we've been there. And I'm not saying you have to get up front and say it, but in one-on-one or groups of two or three, confessing, talking, and be like, man, I totally understand, or no, I don't understand, but I'm going to love you anyway. And as we confess, we might be surprised that we're not alone. There's multiple people in the room battling the exact same things, but we, we hide it all in and we keep it all closed up because we want to be perfect and we want to be good enough, and we're, we know people will judge us and shame us, so we say nothing And then saying nothing, we're causing ourselves harm. We're hurting ourselves in the body. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. Let this be a safe place where we can just go, man, this stinks. This was the hardest week of my life. I don't get this. I'm battling this. I'm struggling with this. I just need someone to know. I need someone to love me. I need someone to pray with me. I need someone to know I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Love the brotherhood. This should be a safe place. Fear God. Paul, Peter, sorry, not Paul. He throws that in there, right? He says, look, fear God. That word fear, reverent, worship. It's used through all out scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the exact same word. He's like, the person you're going to worship, the person that deserves your worship, the only person that is the worship, the person you recognize for worship is God. Fear God. He is the one you worship. He is the one that should be at the top. He is the one that should be on the pedestal. He should be the one that you're turning to. He should be your everything. And then he ends this passage, this this little chunk. He doesn't say fear the emperor. He doesn't say worship the emperor. He says honor the emperor. So he clearly lets the early church know this is not a person for worship. You don't worship this position or this title or this person. You do not worship them, but you do honor and respect them. Because whether you like it or not, he is in charge of the nation that you're living in. So Peter, writing this book most likely from prison, potentially on trial to be executed, is telling the brotherhood, hey, I know Nero's going to kill me. I know Nero's going to take my head in the Colosseum, but you still need to honor him. It's not right. 
It's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just a Christian. But I don't care what happens. You need to honor him. You need to submit to to the government. You need to submit to those around you. You need to let your deeds be honorable. Even though I'm going to lose my life, I still want you to honor this man. And I think even a step further, we are to pray for those people. As Christians, we are to honor and respect everyone, human beings, and on top of it, our leaders, right? They're God's creation. They need saved. In many cases, they need the light. And many times we want these people to be our enemies. They're our enemies. They're our enemies. Well, if you want to know what Jesus said about that, I just grabbed Luke 6, 27. You could also go to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as, and, and as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We walked through the Sermon on the Mount last year in 2020. You can go back in the podcast and find that if you want to hear that specific sermon. He says, honor the emperor. And again, in in this culture, this early church, that he would have been the enemy. Nero was the enemy. Anything that represented Nero was the enemy. Anything that represented Rome was the enemy. And and Peter said, look, you need to honor them. We want to make them the enemy. And Peter would have known what Jesus taught about the enemies. We are to love our enemies. We are to love our enemies. And I'm telling you, when you love your enemies, when you pray for your enemies, when you build relationships with your enemies, when you treat them with respect, you may have a situation where 15 years later, your enemy becomes a Christian. I mean, an enemy of the church today became a Christian. Someone who was an enemy, someone who didn't want the church there, someone that persecuted his younger brother Daniel and his younger brother Saja, someone that beat them because they were Christians, someone that wouldn't let them eat because they were Christians, someone that hated the church eventually became a friend of the missionaries and had conversations and sat on porches and we went back and forth. And that enemy is now a child of God. If that's not the Bible coming to life, I don't know what is. So we honor these people. We respect these people. We pray for these people. We look at them as human beings. We get to know their stories. We love the brotherhood and encourage people. We worship God and God alone. And we never stop praying and hoping that the enemy will become our brother and sister. Because they're one decision away from being an enemy to a brother and sister. Because ultimately, they're not our enemies. They're God's enemies. Because anyone that's not a child of God is an enemy of God. Every single person out there who doesn't know Jesus is by very definition an enemy of God and will spend eternity in hell. And their one simple phrase of saying, Lord, I need you in my life from being an enemy to being someone that we will worship with forever in heaven. We shouldn't be looking at as enemies and not enemies. We should be looking at as lost and found. Sheep and goats. We need less goats and more sheep. Sorry, Gage. We need the goats to become sheep. We need the lost to become found. We need the enemies to become children of God.
And that's why Peter says, look, I know it's difficult. I know it's not fair. I know Rome is messed up, but this is what I need you to do. Why? Because it's God's will. Why? For the Lord's sake. Why? Because you're a living servant of God. And you're living out your life here on earth to build the kingdom of heaven. And when those things happen and those moments happen and those enemies become Christians, we see these little glimpses, these little glimpses of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And it's something to worship and praise and be excited about. Let's pray. God, Peter understood, fully understood what he was saying and what he was writing. Lord, he was in prison, he was persecuted, he was beaten, and he eventually lost his life. And yet he gives us this message, he gives us these words. He understood what he was saying. This isn't a context issue where he didn't get it. He fully got it. And he tells us to honor and submit to love and respect. Because he understood, enemy or not, they were still your children and they still needed the truth and they still could be used by you. Because there was always hope. So Lord, in our daily life, as we talk about people in leadership, from the local level to the presidential level. God, help us to think about our words, our actions. What are we saying? What are we teaching? Lord, there are going to be leaders we don't like. And we know that. There's leaders right now we don't like, we don't care for. But God, let us honor them. Let us talk with respect about them. Let our actions be honorable to the people around us and to our children. And more importantly, God, let us pray that they would come to the light, that they would see the truth, that they would fear you and not whatever they're fearing right now. God, let our actions and our deeds and essentially our words be a testimony because we live amongst unbelievers. Every single day we live amongst unbelievers. And we have a, cho- we have a choice to honor people, treat them differently, pray for them, or be like everyone else and criticize them and throw them under the bus and put them in a category. God, help us to not be that. Help us to live as living stones, as a holy temple, as a chosen race, as your people. And Lord, as we continue looking at this over the next few weeks, none of us are slaves to a person, but some of us are slaves to sin. But God, we can apply this to our workplace and obviously as we look at marriages, there's so much more to just recognize that we have to let go of. So God, help us to worship you alone. And Lord, for my own life and for everyone in the room, I just pray that you are here with us. You pour out your spirit on us and you continue to show us the areas of our lives where we need to apply these truths. In your precious name we pray. Amen.